We are in uh, 1 Kings chapters 2 and 3 this morning, so you've got your Bibles, your iPads, open them up, and fire, or iPhones, I guess, because I've got like half a dozen iPhones over here. That's cool. I've been wanting to do this for a while. How many of you brought an actual physical hard copy of the Bible today? Raise your hands. <laughs> Keep them up. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I had somebody ask me this at work the other day. So we've got 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. How many digital copies of the Bible today? Seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. Wow, fourteen hard copy, twenty digital. That's pretty neat. It's a neat shift over time. So, just checking. All right. So this morning, uh, we're looking at King Solomon. This is our. Uh, we're going through this one hundred week uh, series. This overview of the Bible. And King Solomon is a lot like a lot of folks in the Bible. That when you dig into his life, uh, what you find is not necessarily what you expected to find. Right? There's a whole lot else going on. Um, there's a, the book that I, I love. It's uh, by John Ortberg. It's Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them. Right? And, and you, you've experienced this, right? Because you had somebody over to your house that you thought was really normal. And then when they sat down and ate dinner with you, you went, yep, they're just as weird as we are. That's good to know. <laughs> and uh, Okay. That's, that's really good to know. And, and to me, that's kind of, I've gotten to know Solomon over the last couple of weeks, and he's really not the guy that I was expecting. Um, I had forgotten a lot of this information, this background historical information about him. So we're in 1 Kings chapter 2, um, and if you've ever seen The Godfather, right, because there's got to be a Godfather reference. If you've ever seen The Godfather, there's this scene in The Godfather Part 2 where Michael Corleone is in his father's study, and he's talking Uh, And he's talking about some of the things that his father taught him. And one of the things that my father taught me was that you keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. And and that's kind of how David lived out, I know I'm switching gears here, that's how David lived out the latter part of his kingdom, was he kept his enemies very, very close. Because he had made promises to several of them that they would live. That what you have done against me, I will not seek vengeance against you. And... What he didn't promise them, though, was that on his deathbed, he wouldn't promise his son to go kill them and clean up the mess that he should have done. Um, so, so we have some real Godfather-esque-like stuff that happens today, especially in chapter 2. Um, but for me, the key thought, and here's your first blank, is that no matter how messy, God can bring peace into any situation despite those involved. And for me, this is one of the central overarching themes of the whole Bible is that you know, God is right and holy and just in all that he does, and we do everything in our power very consistently to mess all that up, and he still wins and is right and just and holy and righteous in all that he does um, and makes good out of all of our mess. And to me, that's a beautiful story. So we're in First Kings chapter 2, verse 1. Here we go. Now the days of David drew near that he should die, and he charged Solomon his son. Now Solomon's somewhere between 12 and 18 at this point. So he's a very young man, um, and it depends on your historical theological slant, whether he was 12 or whether he was 18. But David goes on, and he says, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. Verse 4, that the Lord may fulfill his word which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. 
So he kind of does this introductory paragraph of this is what's going on. And it's interesting because this is actually a blessing that many Jewish fathers today pray over their sons at their bar mitzvahs. Um, this idea that, you know, you, you have things that are going to come into your life and I want those good things for you. So here's a blessing for you. And then David really kind of shifts gears pretty hardcore here. In verse 5 he says, Moreover, you know also what Joab the son of Zariah did to me and what he did to the two other commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner the son of Ner and Amasa the son of Jather, whom he killed. And he shed the blood of war in peacetime and put the blood of war on his belt that was around his waist and on his sandals that were on his feet. Therefore do according to your wisdom and do not let his gray hair go down to the grave in peace. Okay, well that's a neat way to phrase it, isn't it? Didn't see that one coming, did you? So this is David's dying words to his son, right? So think about this. I, I don't know if you've ever thought about what you want your last words to your kids to be. Right. Has anybody ever thought about that? If, you, if you're on your death, what, what do you want your last words to your kids to be? I hope that my last words to my kids are not go after Dave Barber, right? Because, dang it, he, he was not there for me one day. What? Really? And that's where we're going here. And, and <laughs> as we go through this, this chapter, 1 Kings chapter 2, it's going to get uglier and uglier and uglier and uglier. This is, this is the easy part of this chapter, so just a heads up. It's going to get worse. So David's advice here, your second blank, is kill Joab, J-O-A-B, since he killed in peacetime. Now, if you remember, last week's lesson, David and Bathsheba, who did David send that letter that Uriah held? Who was the recipient of that letter? Joab. So this is the guy that helped David cover up his own adultery. And David makes sure that he gets knocked off. And you're like, uh, okay. This is, I mean, this to me, I, I got a buddy at work that we've got to lunch sometimes, we talk about the Bible. And he said, you know, I tried to read through, he said, I did what you said, I tried to read through the Old Testament, and he said, I got hung up in Genesis. Because those guys are jerks. I was like... Yeah, they're humans. He said, why would God put people like that in the Bible? Because it's people like us. Because we're jerks, and we're awful, and we're sinful. And, and if he put everybody was pristine and perfect living in the Bible, we couldn't relate to that. And he's like, well, yeah, but they're, they're really bad. I'm like, yeah, he said, so I switched to the New Testament, and I read through the New Testament. And Jesus, well, Jesus wasn't nearly as nice as I thought he was. I'm like, No. No, he was pretty blunt at times. That's right, because the Bible lays things open. It exposes it bare. So <clears throat> I want to be careful here that I don't give the impression that I'm running these guys down. I think we're going to be with them in heaven, all right? Very clearly on that side of the line as far as my theological perspective on this. But at the same time, we all have junk in our lives that we would pray to God never gets recorded for all of mankind to read. Can I get a witness? Okay, so... These are men, and this is the way this works, and this is where we are. So verse 7. But show kindness. Okay, good. Glimmer of light, right? But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For so they came to me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And see, you have with you Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjamite from Berhuim, who cursed me with a malicious curse in the day that I went to Mahanaim. But he came down to meet me at the Jordan, and I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Okay, so David puts his, 
independent fundamental fight and fundy Baptist hat on right here. And he gets real, real technical and literal. I was one, so I can say it, okay? He gets real technical and real literal. He says, I will not put you to death by the sword. What David didn't do is he didn't promise Shimei that he wouldn't tell his son to knock him off later on. So he's cleaning up his mess here. Verse 9, Now therefore do not hold him guiltless, for you a wise man, and know what you ought to do to him, but bring his gray hair down to the grave with blood. Dang. Just, it's pretty hardcore, right? I mean, this is not, we're not playing around. This is on his deathbed to his son. So David's advice here is to kill Shimei because he cursed. Pretty hardcore, right? Because he cursed. All right. So 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 10. So David rested with his fathers. Now don't miss this. That was the last thing Solomon ever was told by his daddy. That to me is just, it breaks my heart, right? That you know, I have this blessing over you, and then kill this guy, and let this family live, and kill this guy, right? That was it. Now he's dead. So you have this 12, 13, 14, 15 year old. He's now king. Verse 11 The period that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron. In Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years. Verse 12, then Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom was firmly established. So, verse 13, Solomon's got some work to do. He had a homework assignment, right? So now he goes through and he starts on his homework assignment. Verse 13, now Adonijah, who knows who Adonijah was? Anybody? The names in this chapter are, so I love the scriptures, I love the Bible, it's inspired, it's holy, it's all those wonderful things. The names in this chapter are truly obnoxious, so do not let them distract you from the fact that this is not Peter and James and John we're talking about. They're words that are very difficult to pronounce. That's okay. They're real people. Who was Adonijah? Anybody know? He was Solomon's brother. Half-brother, right? Uh, He was also David's son. So Adonijah comes, and I'm not going to go through all of this, but he basically says, he comes to Bathsheba, Solomon's mom, and says, hey, uh, David had one of his wives, and I want to marry her. So you need to go to Solomon and convince him to give her to me. And if you know anything about political transitions in kingdoms, one of the ways that you sent a very public message that you were now the new guy in charge, you were now the new king, is that you took all the old king's wives and you made them your own. Okay? This is a power grab. Um, Kaufman puts it into his commentary. He says, taking one of the king's harem, that's your blank, was the equivalent of demanding his throne. So Bathsheba, in, in one of the strangest political moves in the entire Old Testament, I think, goes to David and del- uh, goes to David, goes to Solomon and delivers this message. And Solomon just kind of wigs out, actually. Uh, he goes off the handle. Verse 22, and Solomon answered and said to his mother, now, why do you ask Abishag, this is the woman that Adonijah is looking for, uh, for Adonijah, ask for him the kingdom also. He understood what was going on here. He wasn't a dummy. For he is my older brother. So, so if Solomon had any threats to the crown, it would come from whom? His brothers, because he had a whole bunch of them. Because right? David had way too many wives, and that resulted in way too many kids, and that resulted in power struggles for years and years and years to come. Okay? So 
Ask for him the kingdom also, for he is my older brother, for him and for Abathar the priest and for Joab the son of Zariah. Verse 23, Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, May God do to me also, and more also, if Adonijah has not spoken this word against his own life. Now therefore, as the Lord lives, who has confirmed me and set me on the throne of David my father, and who has established a house for me as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death. When? Today. Okay. We're not going to play around, and we're not going to wait. So David had this concept of delayed, slow justice. Solomon has this concept of right now. All right? Totally different perspective on, on ruling. Verse 25, So King Solomon sent by the hand of his hitman, Benaiah, I put the hitman part in, the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down, and he died. So Solomon's first action as king is to execute Adonijah. His first official action. Now, how many of you expected to hear this about Solomon today? You're like, no, because Solomon's a dude that he prayed for wisdom, right? And then God gave him wisdom, and he was really wise, and they had all this peace. That's the story of Solomon that we teach our kids. Well, the reality is when you have a non-theocratic form of government, right? Because we talked about a couple weeks ago that the only real form of government that's going to work long-term is a theocracy with God in charge. Anything else has problems. Democracies have problems. Republics have problems. Kingdoms have problems. And the problems happen, they're most visible in the transitions. And this transition is ugly, and it's bloody, and it's messy, and it actually takes a couple of years to go through all of this. This chapter talks about the fact that it actually takes three years for Solomon to wipe everybody out that was a threat to the throne. So imagine that. You're a teenager. You just become the king, and you spend your first three years executing people. Then you have peace, and that's the key, right? Because if you want peace, you have to make it. Okay? And this is a big deal. This is a really big deal. So here's how this works. Let's say Julie and I are in an argument. And let's say I just want to ignore it. I don't want to deal with it. I'll just, we'll just do something else. You know what we don't have? We don't have peace. We have something that's going to fester. The lollipop is rolling around in the car, right? Remember from last week. But if I want peace, do you know what one of us has to go do? <laughs> we got like five kill each other. That's awful. No, no, we're not promoting uh, murder here. No, no, we're not. One of us has to go make peace. And that is not always fun. Have you ever tried to make peace with your spouse and that was not an enjoyable event? Right? <laughs> Got folks getting Pentecostal on me in the background. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's not fun, right? But if you want peace, you have to go make it. That's what Jesus talked about in the New Testament. He didn't say, blessed are the peacekeepers. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. Whole different perspective. Because keeping the peace requires that the peace has been made at some point. And this is the story of Jesus. What did he do? He came and he made peace between God and man. So Jesus is a perfect example of this. So back to 1 Kings. Verse 26. 1 Kings two twenty-six. And to Abathar the priest, the king said, Go to Anathoth, to your own fields, for you are deserving of death. And we kind of go, I missed something here. Right? So who's this guy and what did he do? Well, Remember I told you a couple minutes ago, there was this power struggle when David was dying, 
toward the end of his life, all of his sons wanted the throne. Absalom was one of those that came up and was very, very strong in power at this time. And he got a lot of the Israel to follow him. And Abathar, the high priest, was one of them. So when the rebellion of Absalom was put down, David left Abathar in place. But Solomon remembered. Look at verse 27. So Solomon removed Abathar from being priest to the Lord, that he might fulfill the word of the Lord which he spoke concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh. Now, you remember back, it's a great lesson because you get to cover a whole lot of the history of Israel. Remember back when Eli was the priest? Eli had two sons that were model citizens, right? No. Hophni and Phinehas. Their names are synonymous with just absolute, abject depravity. and be, how, how to be a bad priest by Hophni and Phinehas, right? <laughs> that would be the Old Testament bestseller, right? And it was just awful. It was absolutely awful. So God told Eli at that time through one of the prophets, he said, your house will not always be priestly. I will cut them off at some point. And 80 years later, God fulfills his promise. That's a patient God, isn't it? That is a very, very patient God. He fulfills his promise by somebody who never knew Eli. Solomon never met Eli. They didn't live at the same time. He's a very, very patient God. So Solomon's second act as king is to banish Abathar. Am I saying that right? Abathar? Abiathar? He didn't object, so we're just going to go with that. That's it. Verse 28, Then news came to Joab, for Joab had defected to Adonijah, though he had not defected to Absalom. So Joab fled to the tabernacle of the Lord. Joab sees the writing on the wall here. He's not an idiot. Joab is the commander of the army. He's very, very good at seeing things and anticipating strategy. So Joab fled to the tabernacle of the Lord, and he took hold of the horns of the altar. And King Solomon was told, Joab has fled to the tabernacle of the Lord. There he is by the altar. Then Solomon sent Benai, and who's he? He's the hitman, the son of Jehoiada, saying, go strike him down. Whoa, whoa, time out, time out, time out, time out. Where is he at? He's in the New Testament equivalent of church, at the altar, holding on to the altar. And the king says, go take him out. At the altar? Ooh, Really? Really? At the altar. Okay. So Benaiah went down to the tabernacle of the Lord and says, Thus says the king, come out. Benaiah has a little more sense than to just go marching off into the tabernacle. And he said, No, but I will die here. And Benaiah brought back word to the king, saying, Thus said Joab, and thus he answered to me. Now, did Benaiah obey? Did Benaiah obey? No, he did not. I think Benaiah had a little bit of sense in his head to know you don't go waltzing off into the tabernacle and start whacking people. Sorry, my Godfather references are just going to come out constantly. It's just too easy, all right? It's too easy. I thought about making notes and seeing how many lines I could insert and seeing who picked up on it, but I decided not to. All right, for verse 31, Then the king said to him, to Benaiah, Do as he has said, and strike him down and bury him, that you may take away from me and from the house of my father the innocent blood which Joab has shed. He goes on and he talks a little bit more in verse 34. So Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, went back up and struck him and killed him. Really? 
and he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. Then king put Benaiah the son of Jehoiada in place over the army. Oh, he got a promotion out of this. He got the guy's job that he killed. I hope nobody in here has ever gotten a promotion like that. Right? If you have, let's just get that under the blood. All right? And then tell like Michael Ray. He might be able to help you. I don't know. Um, probably not, but maybe. So Solomon's third act as king is to kill Joab. So a killing, a banishment, and a killing. That's how we start the rule. Now, does this to you look like it's going to end in peace at this point? At this point, you think, well, we're just going to have years of war and years of knocking people out. And But I am so thankful that the way a story starts is not the way a story has to end. Um, because God does something really amazingly beautiful in the, life of, in the life of Solomon soon. But we're not there yet. So verse 36. The king sent and called for Shemaiah and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there and do not go out from there anywhere. For it shall be on the day you go out and cross the brook Kidron, know for certain that you shall surely die and your blood shall be on your own hand. Okay. So he didn't, he didn't whack this guy. He just told him you've got to live within this 35-acre area. You can't leave. And Shemaiah said to the king, The saying is good, as my Lord has said, so your servant will do. So Shemaiah dwelt in Jerusalem many days. Verse 39, now it happened at the end of three years that two slaves of Shemaiah ran and ran away to Achish, the son of Maacah, the king of Gath. And they told Shemaiah, saying, look, your slaves are in Gath. So he arose and saddled his donkey and went to Achish at Gath to seek his slaves. And Shemaiah went and brought his slaves from Gath. So does everybody see the problem here? He said, you have to live here. And he did for a while, and then he left. Um, so verse 42, and the king sent and called for Shemaiah and said to him, did I not make you swear by the Lord and warn you, saying, Know for certain that on the day you go out and travel anywhere, you shall surely die? And you said to me, The word I have heard is good. Why then have you not kept the oath of the Lord and the commandment that I gave you? The king said moreover to Shimei, You know, as your heart acknowledges all the wickedness that you did to my father David, therefore the Lord will return your wickedness on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. So the king commanded. Anybody want to guess? Benai. Yeah the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down. It's like a Johnny Cash song or something. And he died. This verse just keeps repeating and repeating. You guys need to listen to more Johnny Cash if you didn't think that was funny. So I have a Johnny Cash Pandora station. It is awesome. How many of you saw that coming? You didn't see that coming, did you? Not many. Okay. Thus the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. So the bottom line is, uh, one of my commentaries said, indeed it was, but the reader feels exhausted rather than satisfied. Right? You kind of get here and you go, ugh, wow, that was hard. But the kingdom is finally at rest now. That's your blank. He's finally at rest from his internal enemies. Now, I want to remember back. I want to remember back. Um, back in time when Israel rose up and said, we want to be like all the other nations. We want a king to rule over us. And God said, he will tax you, he will take your wives, there will be war, and it will be hard on you. Solomon is the third king. I'm not talking the 15th, I'm not talking the 20th, I'm talking the third. And we've had rebellion, we've had the empire almost be split, we've had 
fathers killing sons and sons trying to kill the fathers. We've had treachery, we've had deceit, we've had murder, we've had adultery, we've had chaos, we've had ruin. And we're on king number three. Okay? And what we have seen so far from Saul to David to Solomon is rinse and repeat all throughout the Old Testament. The whole rest of the Old Testament is this cycle of up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. So you got a preview of the entire Old Testament. So you can cut out like 250 pages of your reading if you want to. That's the whole thing right there. No, you shouldn't. All right, 1 Kings 3, verse 1. Now Solomon made a treaty with the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. What? Because a couple of months ago when we were going through, we were getting out of Egypt as fast as we could. Right? So 460 years later, 460 years from the day that they walked out of Egypt, they are now allies with Egypt. So picture this. 460 years from now, we are allies with Iran and Iraq and Syria and North Korea. Can you imagine a day where we are allies with those countries? How cool would that be, right? To be able to be at peace with our former enemies. That would be fantastic. Unbelievable. He's so at peace, he picks up a queen from Egypt. And now we have a problem. Because unless she converted, this was disobedience. And he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house, which took 13 years, by the way. The riches of Solomon, it took him 13 years to build his own house. It's a heck of a house. Okay? And the house of the Lord. Well, that took 20 years, and Terry Bolden's going to talk about uh, that. And the wall around Jerusalem. Verse 2, Meanwhile, the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. And every once in a while, you're going to read the Bible, and you're going to read something, and you'll go, that doesn't sound like a very good reason. That's right. That's a lousy reason. Okay? How many of your kids like to eat sweets? We have kids that like to eat sweets. Have you ever had your kid tell you, well, I ate that because I was hungry? Well, that's a reason, but that's not a good excuse, right? The fact that there was no house of God is not a good excuse to go sacrifice in the high places. The high places are uh, elevated altars where you sacrifice things to a pagan god, okay? So, so think about this. Um, you've all heard of Wicca, right? Just different type of religion where everything's kind of inverted on its head. It's, if you want to know what Wiccans believe, it's kind of the opposite of what we do. It's literally like the opposite of what we do. And uh, so if we went to a Wiccan ceremonial place and decided that right there in that space that we would take up an offering and have a sermon and maybe do Sunday school, who would feel a little fuzzy about that? Just kind of like, I don't know... Something feels off, right? I don't, know if I, can put, I don't know if I can describe it, but something just feels a little bit off. Same thing here. These high places, I don't care who you're sacrificing to, you don't use those. Because those are dedicated to false gods. You don't use those. So, verse 3. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. How is that one full sentence? <laughs> right? But grammatically, this drives me up the wall. Because how, how, how do you reconcile he loved the Lord and he sacrificed in the high places? So, so for those of you that are Bible scholars, you know that Solomon's only mentioned as ever loving two things in the Scriptures. One is the Lord. That's your first blank there. He loved the Lord. 
Anybody know what the other one was? Many foreign women. And not just women, but many. And not just many, but many foreign. Now, uh, being foreign was different then than it is now. All right? My mom, technically, at one point in her life, was a foreigner. She was born in uh, Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Um, I remember when she got her citizenship uh, when I was 11 years old. We went to the courthouse in Nashville, and I remember watching her raise her hand, and she said the pledge, and the judge smiled really big, and it was like the most eclectic group of people I had ever seen in my entire life. I grew up in Shelbyville. It was, everybody was white. You know, it's just the way it was. And this was like, that's amazing. I didn't know God made people that look like that. That's cool. And they all became citizens that day, and it was awesome, right? It's good stuff. Well, mom, just because she was born in Canada, didn't mean she brought a different religion with her. Some, some countries bring a different religion with them when they come to America. Okay, it's fine. In this day and age, when you were associated with a country, everybody was of that religion. Right? So if you went and got a wife from this country, well, that meant that religion came with her. You went and got a wife of this country, that religion came with her. So think about this. Say you picked up a wife in Israel, you picked up a wife in Gath, you picked up a wife in, what's another Old Testament place? Somebody just say a spot. Somewhere else that's hard to pronounce, right? Some unpronounceable place, okay? Now you've got three different religions living in your house. How about them apples? That's going to be hard, right? It's going to be very, very challenging. We know how hard it is just when everybody's on the same page. When we have the same strain of Christianity, right? It, that's challenging at times. Y'all, y'all don't have any challenges at your house? None? Because you're all looking at me funny. Okay. Yeah. So he loved the Lord, and he loved many foreign women. And this was a problem, because the strange women led him to more sacrificing on the altars. Uh, so verse 4, Now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. You're going, dang, that's a lot. But it was the wrong place. He did the right thing at the wrong place. And at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask and what shall I give you? So here's the thing that I don't want you to miss. I don't want you to miss the fact that God will be gracious and just even when we do the right thing at the wrong place. Just because God shows up and does something wonderful does not condone our actions. God is going to show up and do something wonderful regardless. Right? Does this make sense? Because some, you can read through the Bible and you can go, oh, well, God showed up and he, he gave Solomon this great thing, so maybe it was okay that he was doing that. No. No, it wasn't. It was not okay. Leviticus has major, major issues with what Solomon is doing right here. Okay? Does everybody understand? I don't want to, I don't want to miss this point. So, God says, what shall I give you? So this is the equivalent of you got one wish out of the genie. You got one wish. You're a teenager. You're a teenager, and you get one wish. Boy, I'd have blown that one. <laughs> right? Because, what I 17, what would I have wished for? No, I wouldn't worry about a car. I'd have been six inches stronger with better basketball skills, or I'd have been the captain of the Starship Enterprise. <laughs> one of those two. One of those two. Maybe... Maybe six inches taller with basketball skills and the captain of the Starship Enterprise. That'd been cool. I, I can't imagine any scenario which I'm going to come up with something redeemable. 
at 17, 18 years old, right? That, were any of you that mature at 17, 18 that you think, yep, I'd have picked the right thing? Yeah, right, right now, right? It's a challenge. I, I don't really know. If I knew, if I knew for sure that it would absolutely, completely, and totally happen, however I said it, I, I don't know. That's, that's hard, right? That's really hard. So what does Solomon wish for? And Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth and righteousness and in uprightness of heart with you. So there was, some, there was apparently some filtering of the stories that David told to Solomon, right? <laughs> you have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord, don't miss the next word, my God, you have made your servant king instead of David, my father, but I am a child. I do not know how to go out or come in. You ever had a job you didn't know what to do? You didn't know how to do it? You, you kind of got, got put in a, a situation and you went, uh, I may be in over my head here. I need some help. So who does the king ask for help? Right? He's already killed all of his dad's enemies. So perhaps the next guy he asks for help is going to be a little bit intimidated. So he goes to God and he asks for help. It says, And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Which I think is a little bit of a head nod going, I'm not going to count the people like Daddy did and get in trouble, because I remember that, and that was bad. Right? Therefore, verse 9, give to your servant an understanding heart, or literally, a listening heart, is what he's asking for. A listening heart. He's not asking for wisdom here. I don't want to like shock everybody, but understanding heart to judge your people. This is the wisdom part. So, so bear with me for just a second. I want to... I want, to under, I want to make sure we understand the difference here, okay? So, so it all starts with fear of God, okay? And that leads to what? What does Proverbs say the fear of the Lord leads to? It's the beginning of, it's the beginning of what? It's the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of knowledge. When you take knowledge and you add time and you add opportunity... Then you get maturity. You understand things, right? And when you're mature, that leads to discernment. Now, many people confuse discernment and wisdom. Discernment is knowing what the right thing is. Most people think that's what wisdom is. Wisdom is actually doing that thing. Wisdom is skillful living. You've heard this before, wisdom is skillful living. Well, discernment is knowing what to do, and wisdom is the next step, actually pulling it off. Most people that I know can get here most of the time. We know what to do, right? It's that next step that is so hard, right? So Solomon asks for this discerning spirit. He wants to understand how to listen so that he can know what to do in order to judge so that he can then go do it. So Solomon, for Solomon, his theology is not about knowledge. His theology is about application of that. Does that make sense? There's a, a lot of little moving pieces here, but I want to make sure we got that. That I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? So God gets really impressed, right? He says, this is amazing. God says to him, it says, the speech pleased the Lord. So maybe impressed is the wrong word. He smiled. We'll say God smiled. That's probably a better way to put it. 
that Solomon had asked this thing. He says, Because you have asked this thing and have not asked for a long, a long life for yourself, nor have asked for riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Remember? God, God knows exactly what Solomon asked for. He was listening. To discern justice. Behold, I have d- done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has not been anyone like you before, nor shall there arise any like you after. And I have also given to you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings of all your days. So if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Anybody know how old Solomon was when he died? Anybody? He never saw 60. Does that sound like a long and old life? Not to me, because he didn't obey this last part. He didn't walk in all those statutes. He didn't keep all those commandments. He never saw 60. Like, wow, okay. Verse 15, then Solomon awoke, and indeed it had been a dream, and he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant and offered up burnt offerings, offered peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. This is a new day. This is a new Solomon. This is not the Solomon who offered at the high places. At least for this one day, something was different. And then the rest of that chapter goes into this, what I think is a truly bizarre judgment. Um, I've never really understood it or seen how it showed how Solomon was incredibly wise. But two women come and say they're arguing over this baby. Solomon says, well, let's just kill the child. And the mom, the real mom says, no, don't do that. And the other mom says, yes, kill the child. It's never really made a lot of sense to me. But Solomon, everybody looked at the situation and said, Solomon's really wise. Wow, look at our new king. He's awesome. And he's a teenager. That's cool. Right? So that's the story of Solomon. So what does that mean? So, so what for us? Well, it takes wisdom to lead well, I think. Um, God's not in a hurry. You know, this whole 80-year period to wait and reconcile this problem with Eli's family. And God works in spite of our sin and our attempts to help uh, his will be accomplished. So what do we do with that? Well, ask God for wisdom. And I, Esther sent me some notes this week. And she said, and then practice it. Right? Because how many times do we ask for wisdom in a situation and you go, okay, I got this knowledge. I got this discernment. I understand what's right and wrong. And now I need to go do it. Yeah, I'll wait on that. No, we, we practice this. We use this. And, and that's how we get better at it. And then live in the knowledge that only God can make it right in the end. Um, and then number three, confess quickly. Confess quickly. For me, this is another um, a, a lesson that we learned from David's life, that we learned from Solomon's life as well. Um, he had a problem with all these wives. He had a problem with sacrificing in these high places, and he didn't confess that quickly. And it festered and it grew and it grew and it grew and it grew and it grew. And later on in his life, the, the very last few days, the last few verses that we hear about Solomon are that he turned his back on the ways of the Lord. Right? His wives turned his heart to other gods, and he followed after them. And it, and it was awful. It was absolutely awful ending to this potentially beautiful life. Um, so I know it's kind of a downer to end the Sunday school lesson on. It's okay. Not all stories end perfectly and beautifully. It's all right. Uh, next week, Terry's going to come and talk to us about the temple, uh, and I am excited to hear about that because that's something that I know about that much about in the Old Testament. So. And to hear more.
more. If you've got your uh, prayer request sheet at your table, make sure you fill those prayer requests out. Make sure your name and everybody's name who is on your, at your table gets filled out. That's how we take attendance. That's how I know who to track down during the week. All right. Thanks for coming, guys. Appreciate it.